We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 22 this morning. Acts chapter 22. give you a moment to turn there, and as you're doing that, I'll just remind you where we left off. Uh, there's a mob that arises, and, um, and Paul is there uh, in the barracks, and uh, he asks whether he can speak to them or not, that is the crowd, and he permits them to do so. And uh, it says in verse 40, just backing up to chapter 21, it says, So when he had given him permission... Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Verse 2, And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way, that is the way of the Lord, as it was called in the early church. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priests priest bear me witness bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom i also received letters to the brethren and went to to damascus to bring in chains at even those who were there in jerusalem to be punished now it happened as i journeyed and came near damascus at about noon suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and i fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. 
And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That is the means by which he was washed from his sins, by calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, that is this mob, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Oh my. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander, order, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should go and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul saw to the centurion who stood by, said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went away and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 43 and to have a rather lengthier passage here before us. Genesis chapter 43 uh, you're familiar with the narrative, which makes it more difficult for me, um, but is a blessing for me to realize this uh, week that as I was studying this, look back at the last time I preached this was May 21st, 2006. It was that day that uh, the church here uh, voted for me to uh, be the senior pastor, and I really appreciate that very much. A word of thanks again for that. Um, but I've revised and improved and uh, share with you this morning from chapter 43 in Genesis 44 and 45, God willing. Last time, and I, I start with a little bit different way of approaching the text, uh, just with some uh, kind of thoughts, uh, topics, if you will, that arise out of it. Last time I mentioned what I call here carried guilt which we observed in chapter 42. If you recall, in chapter 42, uh, Joseph subjected his brothers to a short stint in prison, maybe just to let them know how he felt uh, during his time in prison in uh, Egypt. Um, and uh, they said to one another, we're truly guilty concerning our brother. 
For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not listen. So why is it 20 years on down the road now that they figure that they're being put in prison for what they did for their brother? Well, they're carrying this guilt with them. This is not a a cross-generational guilt that is one carried across generations, but rather an individual guilt carried through one's life for a long time. In this case, it bothered the Jewish patriarchs when they thought about what they had done to Joseph. And perhaps you have some severe issue in your past that has caused you carried guilt as well. Uh, Some have had abortions, for example, and they carry the guilt with them for the rest of their lives. Or some other thing that they have done, perhaps secret, unknown to others, the Jewish patriarchs here had that kind of thing. And especially when they were confronted by a bad situation, they naturally came up with the suggestion that maybe they're suffering a consequence for that thing which was you know, unavoidable as they thought about their past life and they were suffering for past sins that were done. Now, this is not entirely accurate theology. You know that, right? You don't suffer... Um, If God were to mark iniquities, if if, if he punished us according to our iniquities, what would happen to us? Oh, I mean, it's it's beyond comprehension to think. It's, It's beyond what you want to think about. It's nightmarish. It's terrifying. So God doesn't. You know, just like with Job or or John chapter nine, we always go back to those examples of the poor man born blind. Was this man born blind because he sinned or his parents? Oh, great! That gives me a lot of options to unpleasant options to choose from. You know, I have to either say, well, his parents are wicked or he's wicked. No, but uh, the Lord said to to glorify God, he was born this way. So, uh, mechanical retribution is not the way to go in our theology, but it's sometimes true, and we're thinking about the possibility that God may be chastening you for some things that you have done and need uh, to have uh, improvement in your life. There's only one way to address carried guilt, and that is to confess your sins to God through Christ, and if possible, to confess it to the person that you sinned against and make restitution if, that's, uh, if it's a sin that can be made restitution. There's some sins that you cannot uh, restitute, you know what I mean? You can't make payment back for those. Sometimes you might realize a sin that you have done against someone who's dead. You can't go back and confess to them your sin then. So you must confess it to God and trust him to wash that sin away. That is the purpose, one of the big purposes of the work of Christ, to address that guilt that we carry around with us, pictured in in, uh, Pilgrim's Progress as that huge load on the back of Christian who wasn't yet a Christian when he was still carrying that load, but when he saw the cross, he uh, experienced that load roll off of his back and be rolled away from him. And that's how you come to terms with guilt that you're carrying, of whatever sort it is. And it can be things that even have ongoing consequences. You've done something in your life, and you're still in that situation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can't undo those things, like we said. You, you can't 
uh, go back and redo or undo things that have been done. It's not just so easy as pressing restart on the video game or control Z on your keyboard to undo the mistake that you've made. If only we could undo some things like that or drag back the sound waves that have come out of our vocal cords and mouths when we say something we ought not to say, but there's no way to gobble up those words. You can't move your mouth fast enough to get, catch up with them and, and eat them back so that the person doesn't hear them again unless you can move faster than, what, about 800, 900 miles an hour and break the sound barrier, but you can't do that. Uh, second thing, well, let's actually read starting in chapter 43 because there's a long section here. We'll just uh, read some of this. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, bought and brought, that the, their father said to them, this is Jacob, go back and buy us a little food. But Judah became the spokesperson here. He says, look, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you, speaking of Benjamin. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. And the reason he says that is because at the end of chapter 42, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. So it was easy then because they had plenty of food. Now it's a little more difficult because they're facing a situation in which they need something. Uh, because he says in verse 5, the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. This was Joseph's test to them. And Israel says, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? So, yeah, you know, but they were honest men, weren't they? They told it just honestly like it was. You know, remember how we dealt with that last week. They were sort of, sort of honest, uh, sort of dishonest. But um, so they told about their brother and their father and, and Israel uh, complained about that. But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother of course, Joseph knew the questions to ask. Kind of makes it funny. but And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. That's a fancy word for guarantee. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man and listen to this. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Let me just pause there and just encourage you to think for a moment with me about the anguish of the soul of Jacob. He was being asked to let his baby go down to Egypt. Now the baby wasn't a baby anymore. He was a young adult by now, it seems. 
But he's, he's being asked to let his youngest son go with the same brothers that the last time he did this ended up, well, as he later would find out, I think, killing, not killing, but selling his brother, their brother, but also making it like they had, that he had been killed. And so he said at the end of chapter 42, I'm not going to permit it. You know, I was like, don't even talk to me about it. But the famine continued and he had little choice unless he go down with Benjamin himself and the family to make sure that everything was good. But that was probably not going to work because of his age. He was already advanced in years. As we find out very shortly, he was, I think it's, I didn't read ahead to remind myself, but 137 or something like that. His very aged and general health probably prevent him from traveling if he didn't have to. He was deeply troubled because he did not want to lose another son. There's little grief. There, there, there seems to be almost no other grief known to humankind than to lose a child. And then to lose another child, you have to think, man, everything is against me. I've gone out full and I'm coming back empty. My life is bitter, not pleasant. And <clears throat> the reality is, though, in a sense, if we stop short of think, you know, kind of thinking about losing a child to death, but think about releasing our children into the world, we have to entrust them to God, don't we? Surrender them. Turn them over to the Lord. We cannot protect our offspring the entirety of their lives. You know, they may have to go to work earlier than we would want them or to a different place than we would want them to or, or whatever. We have to trust the Lord with this. And so that's the lesson that I was reminded of with Jacob. Listen, Jacob, God is in charge. And he's promised what? The Abrahamic covenant, right? I will bless you. What he doesn't know is that even in the loss of his son Joseph, he thought, God had blessed him. That's a strange thought, I suppose, but it's the truth. Let's read on in verse, chapter 43, verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he might make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. Okay, so now there's <laughs> their guilt is still upon them even worse, even though they didn't do anything wrong the last time because uh, it was placed there. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down to the first, the, sorry, the first time to buy food. But it happened. So they talk about the money being there. And uh, they, we brought more money down, verse 22 says. In verse 23, listen to this. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought Simeon out to them. Simeon apparently had to stay in prison for quite some time. 
How long? Well, however long it was for them to journey back, eat all the food, hem and haw about whether they're going to go back again, and then to go back. So this is more than just a few days. Perhaps weeks or months have gone by, and Simeon has been there in uh, in the jail. Uh, hopefully, it was uh, you know I don't know a white collar place at least, but uh, that's where he was. So. Uh, they brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. They made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he, at, okay, again, another fulfillment of his dream, wasn't it? Another fulfillment. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And, they said, and he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. I could, I could pause there just about like the anguish of Jacob. Think about this emotion in Joseph. He can't contain himself. He had to go away. He went in his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for it is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Uh, that's an interesting uh, situation that you've pictured there. Um, there's a severe kind of ethnocentrism among the Egyptians at this time in their culture. They just couldn't stand Hebrews. They couldn't stand, and I don't know if there, was, there were others that they couldn't stand, but <laughs> isn't it the case? So many people are against the Jews, you know, uh, both today and even back then. Uh, 43.32 uses the word abomination with this. And uh, we see it also in um, 46.34. It says in chapter 46.34, Then uh, that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from now, uh, from youth even till now, we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Oh, what's wrong with shepherds? What's wrong with blue-collar guys that have a little dirt under their fingernails? That sort of thing. So Joseph ate in a place by himself, uh, kind of at a separate table, which seems very strange to us, but what he was doing, we may excuse him for this time, uh, because he was using this culturally based situation as cover for his, uh, you know, for him being a brother to these guys. He's trying to, trying to maintain the charade, if you will, that he's not their brother and uh, that he's uh, in a place of testing them and 
and putting them to that test. So we excuse his action this time because of that. He was a Hebrew, after all, and would have no personal issue eating with his brothers, uh, with his own kin. But he designed the situation to last a little longer than what it did last. Now, when this is done, this kind of thing is done for purely ethnic reasons, not for reasons of a cover-up or not for... Uh, other reasons I footnoted, I think, in my notes there for you regarding uh, uh, when we are told in the New Testament not to eat with people who profess to know Christ but then behave as if they do not. Um, it's a different situation. But when it's done for purely ethnic reasons, this kind of activity is vile before God. We are all of one race and we're designed by God to get along with one another. We see a similar thing in the New Testament in the book of with Peter and Paul, Paul confronting Peter, address, somebody told me, yeah, well, it's in Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians 2, it did happen during the timeline of the book of Acts, but in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21, notice what the text of scripture teaches us here, Um, it says, Uh, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So it's kind of like, you know, here's Joseph eating with his brothers. But when they came, the Jews came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So here the Jewish people are exercising a similar kind of ethnocentrism but in the other direction toward Gentiles. But then Paul confronts Peter about this and and says, look, we're not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Christ. We believed in Christ that we may be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, not by keeping the law, not by uh, dissociating from Gentile people, not by observing the uh, food laws and that sort of thing. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so he kind of tackles Peter there by saying, look, you taught that Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. Now you're acting as if they're not. So really your behavior is very bad because you're undermining the very foundation of the gospel. You're undermining salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And you're saying there's got to be something else to be right with God. And Paul says, that's not the case, Peter. So Peter had to take it on the chin, and he had to realize that he was wrong in this ethnocentric kind of behavior. And that was an evil, because especially an evil, because it demonstrated fear of man and undermined the gospel. So Paul and Peter, Paul really straightened that out uh, with Peter. And we are reminded that ethnocentric behavior like this is completely inappropriate. It's uncalled for. It shouldn't be found in the church. Uh, The church is the place where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, that we're all one in Christ Jesus in that way the Scripture teaches. So uh, interesting there about his ethnocentrism, or at least his culturally accepted ethnocentrism, and of course he was not doing it for real, but just for the act of it. 
Um, so verse uh, 40, or chapter 44. So this is an interesting little kind of side situation where he's now going to put them to the test again. He says, look, take, give them as much food, give them back their money, and also put a special silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. And uh, so they sent them away. Then Joseph said to his steward, which must have thought, man, this guy's nuts. Why is he doing this to these guys? Um, and uh, Joseph pretends to be a guy who practices divination and so on and uh, brings them back. They find the cup in the uh, uh, provisions of Benjamin. That's down in verse number uh, 14. Um, uh, sorry, verse uh, 12, he searched, he began with the oldest, left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So they're like, oh my, now we have a major problem because Benjamin is going to be the guy that's going to be kept in prison this time, and our dad is going to be beside himself. So they tore their clothes, each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, while, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph accuses them of, of doing this, putting them again to the test and seeing what they would do, how they would handle this, uh, this trial. Um, and so he says, Judah says, What shall we say, my Lord, and what shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Um, and so really what he's saying is, here we all are, we're guilty together. But Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. The rest of the chapter is a lengthy discourse by Judah, standing in intercession, really for Benjamin, but also more so even for his father. And I was quite um, moved by this because it showed me a return of humanity to Judah. When I say that, I'm reflecting back two decades earlier when he didn't hear the cry of his brother. Inhumane treatment of their young brother when they sold him into slavery. But when the shoe was on the other foot, when it was on Judah's foot, when he needed the mercy, now he, he starts to get some concern. Now he showed a little bit of it back earlier when he said, look, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. He's, 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 he's seen now for 20 years the, the effect of what was ostensibly the death of his brother on his father, that effect was terrible. But what he's really seen is the effect of his lie and his inhumanity toward his brother on his father. And now it's interesting to notice that humanity has returned to Judah when he has had had no compassion on his brother, but now he needs mercy and he shows concern for his youngest brother now, thinking Joseph really is gone. Benjamin is the one remaining. And he, it seems, perhaps has learned something. 
the Bible focuses in this passage not on Judah and his development as a person, but on Joseph and on how God was using him. We'll see that more in a moment. But God also was working on the other brothers. Who could argue that? Their guilt, this circumstance, this trial was showing them for what they were and what they had been. Teaching them through the trial of the famine, through their submission to Joseph, and thus God's fulfillment of his previously revealed will and the grief of their father Jacob. It's precious to see that love that Jacob had for his youngest son and how their brothers now respect that. They didn't respect it before, right? Oh, here comes this dreamer, this multicolored coat. Let's get rid of him. They treated Joseph with great disrespect. Now they're showing great respect for Benjamin because of his father's love for them, for him. So uh, we, we move on in our reading. And uh, so Judah makes this long statement. He says, look, I can't, I can't let you do that. I, you have to do something else because if you take Benjamin, our father is simply going to die in grief you will cause him to die in grief, and that is going to rest on me because I became surety for my brother. Verse 34, How shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Well, at this, Joseph can't take it anymore. Put yourself uh, there as a fly on the wall in that situation and just be thinking, imagining, watching. Joseph, verse 1 of chapter 45, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. Now, I imagine him doing this in the Egyptian language. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, And now here I imagine him switching to the Hebrew tongue. No translator, no intermediary. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Yosef. I am Joseph. Does my father still live? (laughs) You're the fly on the wall. What are you seeing? Utter shock in those brothers. (laughs) You're Joseph? Could have fooled us. What do you mean? You're dead, aren't you? They had believed their own lie so much that they eased their conscience by thinking that he was dead. That's easier than thinking of something more terrible happening to him and being in prison or being a slave the rest of his life. He's just gone. I am Joseph. How is my dad? His brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed in his presence. Not only were they shocked, but their shock was a fearful shock. They were like, oh no. (laughs) Now we're really going to get it. Joseph knew that very well, of course, and he said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. That proves it right there. They knew that that 
That was the sign. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Just, just pause and think about that for a minute. Joseph, was, it was revealed to Pharaoh through Joseph effectively, this prophecy of the next 14 years of the world's condition. God did that, why? To help the Egyptians? <laughs> to preserve the people of Israel. That's why he did that. And Joseph knew what was going to happen. This is kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, if you were to tell me, look, it's not going to rain for the next three years, and you were right, I would say, hmm, somebody's got some insight that I'm not aware of. He knew for 14 years what the situation was going to be. There's still five years left. They're nine years into this thing. Seven of plenty, two of famine, nine, and then five more. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. Twenty years ago, God did this, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Joseph was made a father to Pharaoh. What does that mean? The language seems to indicate that the first Pharaoh that Joseph had stood before when he was 30, the one that was in charge when he was in Potiphar's house and then when Joseph was, was a servant in Potiphar's house and then he was in prison and then who had the dream and then called Joseph out of prison to interpret the dream for him, that Pharaoh was Sanusret II and we have dates for him around... Uh, I forget them now, 1878 B.C., somewhere in there when he passed away. It appears that now Joseph is serving the son of that Pharaoh. And I suspect that that son was younger than Joseph was, who was 39 now. So he has become a father to this younger Pharaoh. The, the, there was some... Apparently, history tells us some overlap between Sanusret II and Sanusret III, pharaohs of Egypt. For about 10 years, there was a co-regency period, and uh, that was often done with leaders to kind of groom them, prepare them for their leadership when the father was uh, gone. And so he's been there for the end of the reign of the first pharaoh that we're discussing, and then into the reign of the second. And the second one was younger and probably looked up to Joseph as, he's a counselor to my father. He's been 100% correct about this famine. He has set us up so that we can survive and we become a, the breadbasket of the Middle East. And uh, so Joseph is like, a prime minister, a co-regent co almost, an advisor to Pharaoh. Very strange, isn't it? How the world puts the Jewish people in a small corner and here one is basically ruling one of the most powerful empires in the world. Joseph, a father to Pharaoh. Keep reading. 
Verse 9, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, and see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. In other words, look at me. Can't you tell that I am your brother? So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. There's some archaeological evidence, by the way, that there was a, a man of high, high position in the land of Egypt, even one associated with a multicolored garment. You can see that in, um, what's that video, Exodus, uh, what's it called? You remember the name of it? You know what I'm talking about, though, don't you? Yeah, I can't think of the full name of it. But anyway, we have that interesting uh, information on a video at home. Anyways, um, so he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept over them, verse 15. And after this, his brothers talked with him. Of course, that's going to be you know, a long conversation, catching up after all those years. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Now listen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your fathers and come. I'm sorry, bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. This was moving to me when I was rereading this text. To think of the power of a secular leader to do good to the people of God. Cyrus did it later on. Nebuchadnezzar did it later on. Here, Pharaoh is doing it. He's done good to Joseph, well, his father, and he's kept Joseph in that position uh, after the death of his father, this, this next Pharaoh here. Here we are told that the superpower king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, was happy to hear about Joseph's long-lost family being discovered. He knew that things were difficult in Canaan to the northeast because of the famine, and what did he do? He commanded the people to come down. Now, he didn't technically have commanding authority over them in an international context, okay? We understand that, but didn't have that jurisdiction, but he had care and concern in his heart for people who were hurting, people who needed benevolence, people who needed help. And because of their connection to Joseph and their general human condition, he used his power and his wealth for good. People in power today need to listen to this. You need to use your power and your wealth for good towards people and God's people. Generations later, the pharaohs used their power and their wealth for evil against the same people. We'll read in the book of Exodus another pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And he oppressed the people of Israel 
And so you can have one office, Pharaoh. One used it for good towards God and his people. One used it for evil toward God and his people. And today the same principle is at work, isn't it? Those who be in power today use it against the people of God. We just experienced this week the uh, terrible news. I, I did. There was, the news happened several weeks ago, but of hundreds of churches being burned to the ground and Christians being persecuted in India. And the premier or prime minister or president of India was here this week for a visit, a state visit to the White House. Somebody needed to talk to that man and tell him, look, it is not permissible, it is not cool for you to allow this kind of persecution to happen to Christians in your nation. But did any of our leaders have the guts to say that to him? They should have. Because you should use power and influence and wealth to help people, not to harm them. That's a moving truth that I glean from this portion of Scripture. So whatever you have in your hand, the power to do something good for someone, do it. Do that. And God saw to it that that happened for the people for the sake of the Abrahamic covenant. So it says in verse 21, Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, some kind of wagons or something, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. The favored brother. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. In other words, get, get to it. Yeah, uh, then they went out of Egypt. Well, why? Because I, I want to see my dad. You got to bring him. Don't waste time. Don't be doing, you know, delaying. Don't be sitting there around the table looking at one another, hemming and hawing about what to do. So they went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Okay, you're flying the wall again. What do you see? Shock. Not only is he alive, he's governor over all the land of Egypt. Well, it's good to have friends in high places. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Have you ever received a piece of news where your heart just skipped a beat like? You felt like that strange feeling that you feel when something like that comes to you, somebody, some bad news or some good news? You know that feeling, I trust. That's what happened did his heart really stop? I mean, did he have a cardiac arrest? Obviously, we're, we're speaking somewhat, I don't know, how do you want to say, hyperbolically, if you will. His heart restarted quickly, and he was still alive. Uh, and he couldn't believe it. When they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts in which, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived he was probably silent for a few seconds or even a few minutes digesting the news. You've seen those videos where somebody, you know, some 
adult child comes back home and gives a wonderful gift to their parents, like a new car or something like that, and the parents just can't believe it, and they just turn around and walk back into the house and they can't say anything because they're overcome by emotion. That's this. His brain must have been with the, with the uh, adrenaline and all of that in the midst of being reprogrammed to absorb the news and combine it with the old information that he had from 20 years. A major shift was happening in his thinking. I had to wonder, too, if he found out about the lie that his sons had told him all those years. And seems to indicate in chapter 50, verse 17, it's indirect, but it seems to indicate that they, he did find out. And the brothers used that as, and said, you know, when our dad was alive, he, he said, don't, don't lay this sin to the charge of, of, uh, of, of your brothers, Joseph. Well, Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Uh, we see our children every day. Isn't it nice to be able to do that? What if you haven't seen your son for 20 years? Feel that in your heart. After your son has gone to Egypt and been missing, it's beyond joy to experience his return. He was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Remember that from Luke chapter 15? Joseph didn't go away as a prodigal. He was pushed away. But the prodigal went away for a long while, and the dad was watching for him, and, and the, the lad came back in Luke 15, 24, and he said he was, he's lost, and now he's found. He's dead, and now he's alive again. He's a, he was a slave, and now he's free. The analogy here works both for those who run away and those who are forced away. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In this case, Joseph said, Out of Canaan, I've called my father to come to me. And perhaps you have some lost soul in your family who is like <laughs> down in Egypt in slavery. And you're praying, God, bring him back. Bring him back. Call him to yourself. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 45 and our, our comments on it. I have a number of other notes there for you where I just summarize what I've just said, but I'll let you read through those at your, at your pleasure, at your leisure, and just uh, trust that these uh, things are encouraging to you. Obviously, the most important part of this which I have put uh, later on in the notes. I think maybe it's in the conclusion, but um, the, the obvious lesson is that Joseph realized what God had done with him. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me here to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. This is all in 45, uh, verse number 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. Chapter 50, verse number 20 adds, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Does that sound like an echo of any verse in the New Testament that you know? Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Yeah, this is Romans 8, right here in front of our eyes. In order to bring it about as, as it is this day, to save many people alive. We need to recognize Joseph had the right view of God's sovereignty. You sold me into Egypt, but don't be upset with yourselves. God sent me here to preserve, not to kill me, but to preserve you. He's made me ruler of Egypt. Without explicitly saying so, he's he's explaining that God used their evil to keep his promise to Abraham alive. That's really strange, isn't it? God uses evil in his life in order to preserve and keep God's promises. That just boggles the mind. What seemed initially unimaginably horrifying, that they would sell their brother into slavery, turned into an obvious good later on. So Joseph was used as an instrument of God's sovereignty. And that's my final application for us this morning. How are you able to be used as an instrument of God's sovereignty in this world? You don't have Egypt at your footstool, but you have your home, you have your family, you have your sphere of influence, you have your workplace. How are you going to be used as an instrument of God's sovereignty in the lives of people? His people and those that are not yet his people. I pray that you will think about that and you'll say, how is it that even in the midst of difficulties, I can be used of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for filling up these chapters with uh, tidbits, of little lessons and applications and thought-provoking uh, parts of the, of the uh, episode. And Lord, I ask that you will help us to think about how we can be instruments of your sovereign grace in the world, how we can see things through the lens of your sovereignty instead of just seeing them from the small lens of our own little self-focused life. And Lord, all these other blessings that we've seen here, fill, fill our minds and hearts with them. In Jesus' name, amen.